Welcome back to Brainwaves, Jim Sigler here. This week on the show, how a paralyzing bacterial poison has been harnessed to treat neurologic diseases. Dr. Antu Vu of Emory University joins me on the show this week to inject some of her own experience onto our show, and you probably remember her from the episode on the Tanzania Clinic. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Vu. Hello. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jim, for having me. So let me ask you, how is fellowship going so far? It's really nice. Emory was better than I could have like really anticipated because the catchment area is huge and they're not hurting for patients or anything like that. You know, they're readily, they're like, here, you inject the patients and uh, you do the programming. And so it's, it's been really nice. And Stuart Bactor, who's really wonderful, my fellowship director, he's super into quality of life of the fellows. She's like, this should be the best time in your life. You know, that sounds wonderful. I'm so excited for you. I mean, it's freaking brilliant. And it's great. And it's like, it's really good training too. So first, let's summarize what botulinum toxin is, what it does, and how we've used it to our advantage to help patients. So um, we use botulinum toxin frequently in the neurologic clinic, particularly in a movement disorders clinic. And and when you think about it, most people think about uh, the disease entity, botulism. So you think about the bacterium, Clostridium botulinum. You think about symptoms such as, you know, flaccid paralysis leading to respiratory arrest. And exposure to that toxin usually comes from the soil, ingestion of the toxin, colonization of the gut, colonization of wounds. So that's usually environmental exposure. However, we've actually taken the toxin from the bacterium and purified it for clinical use. When you think about the structure of the toxin itself, there's actually two parts to it. Uh, They have an active component that's a core protein. It has a heavy chain that binds the neuron. And there's a light chain that actually cleaves the snare complex, being the complex of proteins that allows a vesicle at the end of the neuron to release its neurotransmitters. And so by cleaving the snare proteins, you actually prevent the release of neurotransmitters, including acetylcholine. The weakness caused by botulinum toxin usually takes effect actually over a week, and the effects can last three to five months. And usually what happens is is that those neurons will actually form sprouts that are capable of neurotransmission, while the nerve terminus that is actually uh, impaired by the toxin is inactive. And then once those nerve sprouts can cause neurotransmission, the muscle becomes active again. Eventually, the original synapse will actually recover, and the sprouts will regress. Okay, and I want to get back to the indications for botulinum toxin injection later on in the episode, but first of all, botulinum toxin is still a toxin. It carries a high risk of adverse effects, uh, some of which can be very serious, so it's not always the first-line therapy that we think of for many conditions, right? Yeah, so you think about the you know, the side effects of botulinum toxin, you think about it causing too much weakness. So, for instance, if you were to inject it in the muscles of the neck, and you might develop dysphagia because it may spread to muscles of swallowing. If you inject it around uh, the face, you can have eye dryness due to its effects on lacrimal glands, and it can cause mouth dryness. Sometimes you want that uh, if you're treating sialuria, and sometimes you don't want that. And you're injecting somebody's hand for writer's cramp, they may get too much weakness and not have functional use of that hand. Uh, so those are usually typically the side effects. There's, of course, there's side effects of putting any needle into your body, of course, bleeding. If you uh, are injecting, for instance, to trapezius, there's a risk of puncturing the lung, causing a pneumothorax. So as far as first line therapy, 
in conditions like dystonia, although most medications don't work very well, there are many patients who derive some benefit out of many medications. For So for instance, if a patient has some mild symptoms, they're hesitant about you know, botulinum toxin treatment, uh, you might want to consider, for instance, an anticholinergic such as trihexyphenidyl, also known as artane. Some patients derive some benefit out of muscle relaxers, and other patients may derive some benefit out of benzodiazepines. The one we most commonly reach for is clonazepam or clonopin. And then moving on to the indications for treatment, uh, you did mention dystonia a few times, but is botulinum toxin indicated for any other conditions? We mentioned dystonia in which, you know, for focal dystonias that are easy to treat, you can target specific muscles. Botulinum toxin really is the first-line therapy that can provide people with benefit without significant systemic side effects. There are other indications for botulinum toxin, one being chronic daily migraine, another being, although not FDA-approved, is sialuria, so patients who have significant drooling. They also approve botulinum toxin for hyperhidrosis, so excess sweating. People have also used botulinum toxin, for instance, for tremor and for treatment of tics, for instance, as in Tourette's syndrome. And as far as which disease entity you're trying to treat, how do you choose between the different types of botulinum toxin? So it's thought that largely the four types of botulinum toxin that are commercially available are thought to be at least non-inferior to each other. The oldest botulinum toxin is used in the United States is onobotulinum toxin A, which is commercially known as Botox. So that has been the first that was approved in the United States. It's the one that we've used for the longest. Therefore, it has the most FDA-approved indications. There are four commercially available toxins in the U.S. Abobotulinum toxin A, which is Dysport, which has the longest use in Europe, actually. It has a long history of safety and usage over in Europe before it was approved here. There's also Incobotulinum toxin A, which is known as Zeomin. That's available in the United States. There is one serotype B toxin, which is known as Remobotulinum toxin B, or myoblock. The three botulinum toxins that are type A, they all have the same heavy chain, but they have different complexing proteins. That is, aside from the core protein, all of them have different complexing proteins. And actually, ZMN doesn't have any complexing proteins at all. The serotype B toxin has a different heavy chain actually, so has a different mechanism of binding to the neuron. And therefore, if you become resistant to a type A toxin, people may move to a type B toxin. And so there are some differences that people believe there to be between some of the serotypes. For instance, there is some evidence showing that abobotulinum toxin A, known as Dysport, can have possibly a longer duration of action and some people find that myoblock, remobotulinum toxin B, is it is a bit more acidic, and so it can burn a bit more on going in. So some people find it certainly more painful. Um, and it also is thought to have more systemic anticholinergic effects. So it may be more helpful in those who have excess sweating or have excess drooling, and we are trying to treat those conditions. In the Movement Disorders Clinic, the most common patients that we see are actually idiopathic cervical dystonia. Classically, the typical example for this would be a middle-aged woman, say, in her mid-50s, and she's had several months of head turning the right with pain in her neck, and it actually improves when she touches her chin, which is known as a sensory trick. 
So classically, this sort of patient would really benefit from toxin treatment. You examine the patient on examination. You have them sit at rest and have them close their eyes and tell them, let your head do what you want it to do. And so you will see their movement come out and you will see that you might see, for instance, the head turning to the right, known as torticollis. You would make note of any other abnormal positions. For instance, if they have a right shoulder elevation that goes with the head turning to the right, do they have any head tilt known as lateral collis? And that helps you plan the injections based on what muscles might be overactive. You would also palpate the neck muscles to see if there are any muscles that are hypertrophied. So for instance, if you had somebody who had head turning to the right, you would think about the rotators of the head. So turning to the right would be the contralateral sternocleidomastoid. So that would be the left sternocleidomastoid and the ipsilateral splenius muscles, which would be the right splenius capitis, splenius cervicus, etc. So you might consider injecting those muscles first. If there's shoulder elevation, you might consider injecting the right levator scapulae. And we might also target muscles that are sources of pain as well. Patient may say, well, my trapezius right here feels very hard and it's really painful here. So we may actually inject points of pain as well. So as far as indications go for botulinum toxin injection, you did mention that it is used for chronic daily migraine. But I like to think of it as an inhibitor of acetylcholine release at the neuromuscular junction by blocking the snare complex from functioning appropriately. How do we imagine that botulinum toxin prevents or treats migraines? So when we think about botulinum toxin, we think about it inhibiting acetylcholine release. But the actions of botulinum toxin are not actually specific to acetylcholine alone. It may block actually other transmitters. When you look at the literature in migraine, one of the transmitters that's thought to be involved in or even causative of migraine is CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide. So one of the reasons that we think botulinum toxin works in treating migraine is is it's thought to actually inhibit CGRP release, therefore relieving people of some of the pain that comes from migraine. Moving away from your clinic, the Movement Disorders Clinic, other physicians uh, and surgeons also use botulinum toxin for treatment of disease. Can you speak to those treatment indications? Absolutely. So some other doctors certainly use botulinum toxin. Many of these, some of these conditions are actually forms of dystonia as well. For instance, ENTs often treat spasmodic dystonia, which is actually a form of dystonia. And they will actually directly visualize the vocal cords and be able to inject them directly in a way that we don't have the skills to do so in neurology. The other uses of botulinum toxin, for instance, patients with spastic bladder, people may have derived some benefit in injecting uh, botulinum toxin for those overactive and spastic bladders. Ophthalmologists use botulinum toxin to treat blepharospasm. Blepharospasm involves excessive blinking, or usually when we refer to blepharospasm, it usually involves tightly and involuntarily closing of the eyes in most cases, involves both eyes and can certainly impair people, impair their ability to drive and read and function in life. When we think about hemifacial spasm, we think about a unilateral spasm of both, not just the eyes itself, although it could just be the eyes, but usually the eyes and other parts of the face, but only on one side. And those with hemifacial spasm, because it is more so of a almost a focal neurologic problem. You wonder about irritation to the facial nerve on one side. Therefore, in these patients, we are more likely to do imaging to look for any focal lesion that might involve the facial nerve on that side. 
However, both of them are treated with botulinum toxin and can be successfully treated in that fashion. Oddly enough, in patients with hemifacial spasms, sometimes if you only treat them just around the eye, the rest of their face may actually improve and they may not need injections in every muscle that's actually involved. Botulinum toxin can also be useful in patients with stroke. Uh, those stroke patients that develop significant spasticity where it becomes difficult for them to perform their ADLs, get themselves dressed in the morning. And there's some patients who have difficulty doing personal hygiene as a result of extreme flexion of the hand, and they may have difficulty cleaning their hands. Many of these patients actually end up over in uh, with our physical medicine and rehabilitation colleagues, the physiatrists. And so many physiatrists do botulinum toxin injections in hopes of improving their ability to care for themselves, to have caregivers care for them as well. The data is not clear as to whether it actually improves function of the affected limb. However, it may actually be able to improve their quality of life. It may improve pain if they have pain in that limb as well. And regardless of the reason for botulinum toxin therapy, most patients usually will derive more benefit from smaller amounts of toxin or fewer injections over time. And other patients may require heavier doses to control their muscle spasm. Why is this? So the dose in the patient's response over time sincerely depends on the patient. Just like any medication, we use the smallest possible dose that is the most efficacious with the fewest side effects. And in considering dosing, we actually consider the severity of the disease, risk of side effects, et cetera. So for instance, if you had a patient that was very, very small, you might not start with large doses. If you have a patient that already has dysphagia and you're trying to treat their cervical dystonia, you might also start with smaller doses not to, so as not to exacerbate their dysphagia. Some patients may need higher doses over time because it may be that they become partially resistant, but you can overcome that resistance with higher doses. In some patients, their patterns of dystonia may change. Instead of having more turning to the right, they may eventually develop turning to the left as you treat one side. And you may need to adjust the patterns that you treat. And some patients, you know, as they, they may develop some degree of small resistance, so you can either come at, overcome it with higher dose or more frequent dosing intervals. And that being said, more narrow dosing intervals, if you do them too close together, you develop a higher risk for actual resistance to the toxin itself or immunity to the toxin itself. And how does immunity develop? So you can actually form neutralizing antibodies to the toxin itself. So for instance, if you formed neutralizing antibodies to the heavy chain, like the binding domain of the heavy chain, you would not be able to get the toxin into your cells, therefore it wouldn't function. Most neutralizing antibodies form to the binding domain of the heavy chain. You can imagine if you could find a different heavy chain, for instance, on a different serotype, if you went from type A to type B, you might not have the same issues. One of the tests for this, you can actually do a forehead test by injecting into the frontalis muscle in a patient and seeing if at a week later or two week interval, you can see, are they able to move their forehead or is that area paralyzed to see if they're truly resistant to the toxin. Also, over time, patients may develop some chronic chemodenervation. They may develop some atrophy in the muscle. They may not need as much toxin because the muscle is quite simply not as active as it once was. Very cool. Thank you for the update on the therapeutic uses of botulinum toxin. Thanks so much, Jim. Again, that was Dr. Antu Vu, a former resident with me and now a fellow of movement disorders at Emory University. 
For more information about botulinum toxin, check out our website at brainwaves.me. As always, let us know what you think about the show. You can rate us on iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or Facebook at facebook.com slash brainwavespodcast. I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Lee Rosevere. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves. And that's it.